Happy New Year, and welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. So we're kicking off 2022 by featuring an interview with Gary Ginsburg, author of First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents, published by the press 12 in July 2021. This New York Times bestseller shines a light on nine select American presidents and their best friends. Author Gary Ginsburg was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Gary, I thought your book, First Friends, was absolute enchantment. It was an inspired idea of a relationship between U.S. presidents and their best friends. I want to know how you came up with the idea and how you chose the nine presidents that you did. Really, I think I woke up with the idea, frankly, and April of 2018, I just had this kind of lightning bolt that was probably the result of decades of witnessing the role of the first friend. I've been a complete aficionado of the American presidency really since I was nine years old. And I was fortunate enough to work on a presidential campaign as a 21-year-old in 1984 when I worked for Gary Hart's presidential campaign. And I witnessed the role of Warren Beatty. He was Gary Hart's best friend from 1972, working on the George McGovern presidential campaign. And he started flying in for some of Hart's most important events. And I would watch him speak to Hart in a way that nobody else on staff dared speak to him. He would say, stop talking and acting like a politician, Gary. And he knew stagecraft better than anybody, right? Warren Beatty, the movie star. Warren Beatty, the movie star. I mean, who knows better about how to campaign for the presidency than a, a man of his renown on the stage and on the screen. And so Hart listened to him and took a lot of what he said to Hart in a way that he just wouldn't have from anybody else. But I also saw how he provided respite by taking Hart out for late night dinners. Warren Beatty was a night owl. And he gave him this relaxation that he couldn't get anywhere else. And it served to both give him a kind of an intellectual sustenance as well as an emotional ballast. And then I saw the same phenomenon in 1992 when I worked on the Bill Clinton presidential campaign and the role that Vernon Jordan played. He gave him enormous joy when he was around him, but he was also able to speak to him in a language that nobody else could. And Clinton reveled in it. They were two men who had a complete melding of mind and spirit. And I just thought it was so fascinating to see that this first friend could have such a unique role in the pantheon of advisors and hangers-on. This was the last chapter you wrote for the book, right? It was. Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan. And it seemed like you did a lot of first-person reporting. I did. It was the one chapter where I could play both journalist and historian because all the key players were alive when I wrote the chapter. So I probably interviewed 20 people 
who worked in and around the White House in those eight years, people who worked on the campaign, people who worked with Vernon outside of his role as first friend. And then I was able to speak to both the president and the first lady. So I was able to get a really good sense of that friendship, in addition to what I personally knew from having worked for Governor Clinton in his campaign and then President Clinton in his administration. Was there anyone who wouldn't speak to you? You know, interestingly, Kitty, no. Everybody spoke to me. Vernon, uh, he was the first person I interviewed for the book right after I kind of hatched the idea. And I went to him and I said, I want to do a chapter on your friendship with Bill Clinton. So we had lunch in his dining room at Lazard, where he was a banker. And he brought along his memoir, Vernon Can Read. And he said, Gary, you're going to notice that I stopped my memoir in 1992 because I'm going to tell the story of my friendship with Bill Clinton, not you nor anybody else. But I'm happy to talk to you about it, but you can't use it. So we talked for about two and a half hours, and he told me just great stories about their 41-year friendship. Unfortunately for Vernon, he suffered a stroke in 2019, and any hope he had of writing this sequel to his memoir kind of went away with that stroke. And then most tragically, he died in March. So I was able to go to his family and ask if I could use some of the notes that I had written down after that interview, and they were more than willing to let me use it. And much of what I had learned from Vernon, I was able to corroborate from the president or Hillary or others who had been witness to that friendship. Gary, you had extraordinary access that an awful lot of biographers don't get when they're writing about living subjects. And biographers are always fascinated by what kind of research you did. You wrote about nine presidents. How did you find out their best friends? You began with Thomas Jefferson. And let's take an example with John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy's best friend was David Ormsby Gore. Many people might have thought that you would have chosen perhaps Robert Kennedy, who was his brother and so close to him. Maybe Dave Powers, who was the White House jokester. I know you said in your book that you had called Caroline Kennedy. How did you come up with Kennedy's best friend? Yeah, you're absolutely right that if you look at the historiography of the Kennedy life and presidency, the names that pop out are those that you just mentioned. Len Billings is the first friend that really comes to mind. And there's no question that he had a unique friendship with Kennedy that goes back to his choke years. Bobby Kennedy, I decided at the outset of this book process to exclude family. It's a different kind of relationship than a friend poses. And there have been a lot of books about close family members to presidents, particularly first ladies. And I didn't want to reprise that. I was really hoping to write a book that was fertile ground. And, you know, part of the the excitement for me of writing this book was knowing that nobody has ever written a book about the first friends of presidents. There have been books, individual books about a first friend, Joshua Speed and Abraham Lincoln, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Ward's book about 
Daisy Sukli, you know, he was the one who, who really took the diaries and the letters and turned them into a really brilliant compendium of that material in, in constant companion. But nobody has ever looked at the presidency. It looked at multiple presidency through the lens of a first friend. And so I wanted to keep it pure by excluding both family and staff. Uh-huh. Because staff serves at the pleasure of a president. So there's limits to what you can and cannot say because your job is dependent on maintaining good favor. And so I just thought that there was a completely different dynamic at play with a friend versus a staff member. I went to Caroline and I said, you know, I could do Lem Billings, but Lem Billings has been written about extensively and we know his friendship. But Caroline, to her credit, said, I've got somebody far more interesting who was truly my parents' best friend, at least for the, the duration of their time in the White House. And she said, you're not going to find it very easily. You're going to be breaking a lot of new ground by highlighting this, but I believe that it is the right friendship to focus on. And I, she said, I'll give you 48 hours, go look it up and come back to me and tell me if it's not the smartest idea you've heard. It took me about 48 hours to ferret it out. But she was dead right, because David Ormsby Gore was not only Jack Kennedy's best friend in terms of giving him that comfort and company and respite during his years in the White House, but he was also his intellectual soulmate, who I think played an outsized role in the shaping and execution of Kennedy's foreign policy during those years of the presidency. So it was a really consequential friendship, but also a deeply important personal friendship for Kennedy. A lot of people listening to this will wonder how you came in touch with Caroline Kennedy. Did you have a previous friendship? Did you write her? How did you execute that kind of information? I've had a long personal friendship with her. I worked with her brother at George Magazine for a couple of years, was a a very close friend of his. And uh, Caroline and I went to law school together, so I met her about 35 years ago, and we have stayed friends throughout. You know, I talked to her about the book from its inception, and I think she found it really interesting and wanted to be helpful and gave it real thought as to who she would recommend to me for her father's first friend. Um, I found reading your book, the most fascinating first friendship was with Harry Truman. Mm -hmm. Would you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Harry Truman's closest friend in life from 1903 until he died in 1956 was a man who grew up in Kansas City, the son of very poor Lithuanian Jews, a shoemaker, in fact, his father um, was. And they met when Eddie had dropped out of high school because he said education doesn't buy bread. And he went to work for a company that sold men's clothing. And Eddie was making deposits at the very bank where Harry Truman was a teller as a 23-year-old, and they became friendly there. They met again in 1917 when they were each assigned to the same field artillery unit in preparation for the First World War. And Truman instantly recognized the financial acumen of Eddie Jacobson. He called him his crackerjack Jew because Eddie Jacobson figured out a way to modernize the canteen that Truman was in charge of, as well as come up with ways to raise money to better 
feed the servicemen in the unit. And so a deeper friendship was born from their collaboration in the artillery unit. They go to war in Europe, they come back, they marry their sweethearts, and they decide to open up a store together, a haberdashery in 1920, selling men's ties, hats, shirts, pants. And the store is a great success in its first year. And then unfortunately in 1921, commodity prices dropped and they were forced to then close the store in 1922. But their friendship survived and it survived as Truman went to become a county judge then a senator, then the vice president, and then eventually president. You always come back to Kansas City and fish with Eddie, have meals with Eddie, play poker with Eddie. Although Eddie, as a Jew, was never allowed inside the Truman Wallace home, he was allowed in the, on the porch because Harry Truman's in-laws, he lived at his wife's family's home in Independence, and they would not allow Jews inside the home, only on the porch. So Eddie despite his first friendship with Senator Truman or Vice President Truman, was never allowed inside his home. And the reason why that is germane to the story is that when I use the word consequential, Eddie Jacobson was perhaps the most consequential first friend in terms of helping decide a single moment in history. It's March of 1948. It's two months before the British mandate over the land in Palestine was set to expire. And Truman had to decide what to do with that land. Do you give some of the land to a Jewish state, some of the land to the Arabs to create their own state out of the land, or do you leave it to the UN and a UN trusteeship? It was a vexing issue for Truman. He appreciated the Jewish attachment to Israel, to its ancestral homeland, but he was also mindful of the fact that his most revered cabinet member, George Marshall, the Secretary of State and War Hero, was dead set against creating a Jewish state. He thought it would bring in the Soviets. He thought it would lead to war and American servicemen going back to the Mideast to go into combat. And he wanted nothing to do with it. So Truman has to make this decision. It's coming up in May. And the Jews are obviously pushing very hard for a Jewish homeland in the wake of the Holocaust. Truman gets fed up with all the lobbying that the Jews are doing. And he says at one point, Jesus Christ couldn't keep you Jews happy. How am I supposed to do it? And he's essentially decided by March of 1948 to leave it alone and let the UN decide. At that very moment, there's a man named Chaim Weitzman who's sitting in New York waiting to come down to Washington to make the pitch to Truman to recognize a Jewish state when that mandate ended. And Truman will not see him because he's fed up with the issue and he doesn't want to see any more Jews. Eddie, at this point, gets a phone call from a Jewish leader who says, we need you to go talk to your best friend and get him to see Chaim Weitzman. If he doesn't see Chaim Weitzman, he's never going to recognize a Jewish state and we will not get our state. So he writes to Truman and says, you got to see Chaim Weitzman. Chaim Weitzman was a British scientist who in 1917 figured out a way to mass produce gunpowder. And as a result, the British government said, we'll give you a reward for helping accelerate the end of the war. Chaim Weitzman says, all I want is a Jewish state. And so the British government passes what was called the Belfort Declaration, promising a Jewish state to the Jews when their mandate ended. So now he wants to see Truman to say, 
you've got to make sure that this Jewish state is realized. Truman writes back to Eddie Jacobson and says, I'm not going to see Chaim Weitzman. I'm done with the issue. I'm going to leave it alone. Eddie does not want to take no for an answer. So he gets on a plane, flies halfway across the country, walks up the North driveway to the White House, walks into the appointment secretary office and says to Matt Conley, who knows that Eddie's his best friend, says, I want to see Harry. Matt says, fine, he's in there. But one thing, do not bring up Palestine. He doesn't want to talk about it. So Eddie says, sure, sure, sure. Goes into the Oval Office, shuts the door. They make some chit chat. And then about a couple minutes in, Truman looks at him and says, Eddie, what are you doing here? Why'd you fly halfway across the country? You didn't do it to just make chit chat. And Eddie at that point says, you have to see Chaim Weitzman. Truman immediately <laughs> throws up his hands, gets red faced, starts screaming at Eddie. I'm so sick of you Jews. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm sick of the issue. I'm done. I'm not seeing Weitzman. Eddie at that point says for the first time in his life, he believes Harry Truman's an anti-Semite. But wow. he's also, so he also realizes that he can't walk out of that Oval Office without convincing Truman to see Weitzman because the future of a Jewish state is in peril. So he looks around the Oval Office and he spots a small bust of Andrew Jackson. He knows from his 45-year friendship with Harry Truman that Andrew Jackson is his hero. He kind of grew up with that Emersonian pioneering spirit, you know, do what you know is right, don't be cowed by people, um, show conviction. You know, that's kind of what he had gleaned from his idolatry of Andrew Jackson. So Eddie says, all right, Harry, I'm looking at that bust of Andrew Jackson. He's your hero. My hero is Chaim Weitzman. What do you think Andrew Jackson would do in this moment if he were sitting at that desk and listening to this appeal? Would he be cowed by a bunch of pushy Jews or would he do what's right and what's in his heart? I know what's in your heart and you know what's right. You have to see Chaim Weitzman. Truman turns back around, looks out the back window of the Oval Office to the Rose Garden, starts drumming his fingers against the credenza he finally swings his chair back around. He says, God damn it, you bald-headed son of a bitch. I'll see him. And sure enough, three days later, Chaim Weitzman comes down from New York. He makes the appeal to Harry Truman. Harry Truman has enormous respect for him, listens to him carefully. And 11 minutes after the state of Israel was declared in Tel Aviv in May of 1948, Harry Truman was the first foreign leader to recognize the state of Israel. If you talk to diplomats today, they say that that was absolutely crucial to creating this bipartisan alliance within Congress to support the state of Israel. And it really gave Israel a leg legitimacy in the world that it otherwise never would have had. I think it's a wonderful story, Gary. Absolutely wonderful. The most interesting president in terms of who he chose as his best friend is FDR. He was the only president to have a female best friend. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. What I discovered in researching FDR was just how intensely lonely he was. You know, he's fighting a world war. He's fighting a depression. He seems like the least likely president to suffer from loneliness. But his wife was away from the White House for large chunks of time crusading for her causes. 
His children were either at war or just didn't want to hang around the White House. So FDR was largely home alone. And at one point he says to Daisy Sukli, whom I have identified and wrote about as his first friend, that, quote, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. And he was a man who didn't want to be left entirely alone. He needed somebody to give him that respite after a day of 22 separate meetings like he had in 1944. And I don't know about you, Kitty, but all I'd want to do is crawl into bed after 22 separate meetings. What did he want to do? He wanted to have dinner alone with Daisy Sukli. And why is that? Well, because Daisy Sukli got him, got him in a really deeply emotional way. She intuited things about him that nobody else did. She provided a sympathetic ear, a comforting shoulder, uh, a curiosity about his life and about what he was doing. And she did not have the distractions of her own spouse or children. That's exactly right. She never married. Uh, a brilliant woman, spoke five languages. Her mother wouldn't let her graduate from college, only let her attend two years of post-secondary education. So she went to Bryn Mawr, but had to come home to tend to the family estate. She grew up in that same Rhinebeck, Dutchess Valley neighborhood as Roosevelt did, but she did not come from money. Her family squandered their fortune while the Roosevelt family still maintained its. But they shared that kind of common background of growing up in the same social milieu. And she didn't have any distractions. She basically devoted her life, certainly in the last, say, eight years, to servicing her best friend, FDR. And by servicing, I don't mean in a sexual way, although I do believe they had a real attraction to one another. I think they shared a kiss one day in September of 1935. But I think for the vast majority of their relationship, it was asexual, it was deeply emotional, it was deeply supportive. I think Roosevelt reveled in her company, she reveled in his. He gave her a life of color. She had lived up till 1933 when Roosevelt was inaugurated in a world of grays, as she wrote in her diary. He really gave her a life, a meaning, and a front row seat at history. She was included in everything that Roosevelt did. And she wrote about it with such color and glee. To read her diary is really kind of the best way to get a sense of how important her role was to FDR when she was just his constant companion. You must have had to do immense research for this book. Well, you know, I'm lucky in that I've worked in media for so many years. And so I had access to a lot of people who could kind of give me insight into the presidents that I wanted to focus on and who their first friends might be. Once I decided on the nine, and I didn't really like at one point just fix on the nine, it was kind of a rolling nine, you know, trading in and out. And as I got that kind of method to how I wanted to organize this, the chapters, the chapters got longer. So the number of presidents was changing all the time because my publisher didn't want a 600 page book. Since most of the presidents were dead, I couldn't do any interviews of these presidents. I did some interviews for Nixon, a couple for Kennedy, dozens for Clinton. But for the other six, it was really just going back into history 
in reading every book that discussed the intersection of the president and his first friend, looking up oral histories for the more recent presidents that had the first friend in it, and just you know, getting a sense from reading, 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 diaries, letters, because you know, in the older presidencies, a lot of these friendships were played out through correspondence. So I was reading a ton of letters between Jefferson and Madison, or the letters between Pierce and Hawthorne, or the first person recollections of people who witnessed that friendship. It was reading every biography to get my hands on of Lincoln. And there are so many. So at a certain point, I really had to limit it to where that intersection was with his first friend, Joshua Speed. With Wilson, you know, Colonel House is actually a subject that historians have taken a great interest in because he played a consequential role in history. So there was a fair amount of material on his life, yet he also kept a copious diary for a large portion of his life, and his diary contained so many gems. Unfortunately, Wilson didn't keep a diary, so so much of what we know about that friendship came from House's perspective. But for the most part, it was um, a pretty intense writing schedule because as I handed in the chapters, my publisher grew to like them more and more. And my publisher is 12 and they publish only one book a month. So they have to set the schedule pretty far in advance. And so my publisher decided this was a, a very good beach read, a summer read. So in beginning of 2020, he said, I want it to be a July 2021 book. So I had about 13 months to really do the bulk of my writing. And so the pandemic overlapped with much of that. And I basically just went into my own personal cave and spent somewhere between 12 and 14 hours a day, both researching and writing, and then sending off chapters to my publisher, getting back his comments, rewriting. Sounds like you've submitted chapter by chapter to I did. your publisher. You know, I, I've written essays and I was a journalist of sorts and an editor of college and law school newspapers, but I've never written a full length book. It was always something I've wanted to do. But you know, this long form writing was all new to me and this narrative writing. And there was no real playbook for how to write a book about two friends. So it was through trial and error. But I found my voice, I think, with Woodrow Wilson and Colonel House. I just kind of felt like I captured my, my narrative style. And so the last four chapters were a lot easier than the first four chapters. That's understandable. In fact, some writers will tell you, get started, write the first chapter. When you finish the book, go back and rewrite the first chapter. Yes. The first chapter went through so many revisions. I mean, the truth is I was rewriting every one of the chapters. I was just constantly going back because I, I think I got better as the process went on. And so I was going back and rewriting paragraphs, rewriting introductions throughout. You were lucky to have an editor over your shoulder on each chapter. Yeah, he was good. You know, he, um, he really kind of pounded into me the idea of show, don't tell. It's somewhat obvious for advanced writers, but in 400 pages worth of narrative, you really want to find the story. You want to find the illustration as opposed to asserting you wanted to show. And so I really looked to find as many good kernels 
of storytelling that I could to animate these chapters. Gary, what would your advice be to prospective biographers who are trying to write books on people who are still alive? The one thing I guess I would say is to be somewhat fearless in being willing to just cold call people, know your subject matter when you make those phone calls so that you can certify your legitimacy as a historian, have really good questions right at the outset to draw your subject into the interview and make this person want to cooperate and have a really kind of fresh topic. The single best thing that I had going for me was people loved the topic of a first friend because everybody has a first friend in their life and they can appreciate the importance that that friend has in their own life. And then when you start to extrapolate that to the most important person on the planet, you start to appreciate the role that he or she can play. And I think it just kind of captivated people right from the outset. You know, JFK said that the single thing that makes biography so interesting is the search for what's he really like. Yeah. And you managed to show it to us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kitty. That was author Gary Ginsberg speaking with fellow biographer Kitty Kelly about his book, First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents, published by 12 in July 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on October 12, 2021. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our new theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day and a wonderful new year.